HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. Hi, I want to welcome Alexandra Jones to today's show, who wrote Stuff Every Cheese Lover Should Know, which is a small but excellent book which truly tells us what every cheese lover should know. Welcome, Alexandra. Hi, Diane. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So what I like about your book is that it dives right in to the serious stuff. Yeah, uh, when I was approached about writing this book by Quirk, uh, they're a Philadelphia-based publisher that puts out a lot of really interesting uh, things like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is one of theirs, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And then they also have the Stuff You Should Know series, which is this cute little pocket encyclopedia set kind of. So um, they wanted me to write a book about cheese, um, sort of, you know, a really easily digestible, um, for, for a, a cheese beginner versus a connoisseur. Uh-huh. Um, but I really wanted to make sure folks got a lot of like really solid knowledge, you know, with my own perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I, I can't believe that in, in early days, you include casein, ruminants and tyrosine. <laughs> well, um, I, I, when I thought about writing this book, I wanted to, they sort of gave me a framework that I could tweak a little bit, but uh-huh. there was a lot that I could customize myself. So I wanted to give folks a breadth of what I had learned in my 13 years now working in cheese in some capacity. Um, and you know, a lot of that does include those basic building blocks. Uh, yes, yes. Before the pandemic, I did a lot of uh, in-person, you know, cheese tastings and pairing classes and stuff like that. And one of the the questions I would get, you know, weren't these super high-level questions. They were really basic stuff. Like, so, like, how what is cheese? Like, how does it get made? Like, very mm. foundational questions. And you realize there's that disconnect between how. Uh, we get to this delicious thing on the plate and like people know it comes from a cow or a sheep or a goat, but they don't really know the in-between. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I could give folks that information in a really digestible way. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you did, you did a great job. Um, some things I did not know. I found out that affinage means refinement. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the literal French translation. Wow, I didn't know that. I also didn't know cheese without eyes is called a blind cheese. That's like a, I think a technical, like, um, judging term, uh, uh-huh. or closed, I believe is, is the term that you would use if that cheese is meant to not have eyes. I think it's when a defect it's, uh, they use that term. Oh, oh, for a defect. Oh, okay. Um, and some things slipped through, uh, let's see. Oh, now I wondered why 13 billion pounds is produced in this country. And second is Germany with 5.4 billion pounds. But isn't, I mean, our country is so much bigger. Yeah, I think part of, um, so yeah, I rank, I rank the countries, just giving people a little bit of that global uh, scale of, um, of where cheese comes from nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the US obviously with a lot of farmland, a lot of cows, uh, and a lot of cheese production, um, we make the most. Uh, but mm-hmm. then you have several European countries that are up there in that top five as well. Of course, they're not going to have quite the same amount of geographic area uh, to mm-hmm. have farms necessarily, but it kind of shows where, um, you know, dairy and culture and dairy industry has really been headquartered. Mm-hmm. And the really interesting thing about the U.S. figure is that uh, a significant portion of that is produced in Wisconsin. Um Yes. They are, I think it's, they would be third, I believe. I don't have the book right in front of me um, on that page, but they would be third if they were a country. So that's yes. pretty crazy. Yes, yes. Um, also, I didn't know that um, microbial recombinant rennet, FPC, is what makes, uh, it's purified, so that's how it gets to be called uh, rennet, even though it's it sounds like it comes from rennet. Right. It's I'm I'm drastically simplified this for the book. Honestly, <laughs> I am by no means uh, a microbiologist or you know cheese scientist, but um, over my years, you know, behind a cheese counter or behind a table at the farmer's market, for example, um, I just would get a lot of questions, mostly from people who are uh, vegetarians, for example, wanting to know if the, if the rennet comes from animals or, you know, understand that a little bit better. Uh And where I am in Pennsylvania, I sell mostly regional cheeses or local cheeses in my area. And, you know, some makers would take that step to just adapt their recipes to vegetarian rennet or microbial rennet so they could say, yes, it's vegetarian. Others find that they get a much better result from an animal-derived rennet um, and that it's easier to use. So it's very particular. um, You know, there, there are reasons we can go into to use all different kinds of rennets, but microbial rennet, uh, where I live, is used a lot by Amish cheesemakers. And um, while it is uh, vegetarian, it is also potentially GMO. So there's the microbial recombinant rennet, um, which is also known as FPC. That stands for fermentation-produced chymosin. If I'm saying that right, it might not be. Mm -hmm. Um, It's basically, it's it's GMO from a calf, uh, you know, stomach lining cell. So they're basically 
uh, creating uh, a, a microbe that will do the same thing as veal rennet. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are, there's one that's from fermentation, actually fermenting molds. Rhizomucor miehi is the mold that is fermented. That creates enzymes that will also co- coagulate milk. So there are a couple of different kinds of microbial rennet. But it's, it said that your book said it wasn't as good. I think it really use, depends. It, like yeah. I said, um, it says that it may be more challenging to use. Um, uh, it's non-GMO, but it might not work as well. And that's not so much a thing that consumers need to worry about. It's really just a reason why maybe some makers don't want to use it. They might uh-huh. find it more difficult to deal with. So that's not uh-huh. a value judgment at all. Mm-hmm. But my goal with <laughs> with that section was to really try and simplify what is a super complicated issue that goes into so many different directions um, to say like, Hey, these are the kinds of rennet. These are what you're going to see, you know, at the cheese shop or at the farmer's market. And these are where they come from. And what you really should do is talk to your, your monger or your cheese maker. Uh, if you do have concern about, about the rennet that mm-hmm. you are uh, mm-hmm. potentially, you know, in the, in the cheese that you're eating um, to find out why they use what they use, because, microbial even though it's vegetarian is not necessarily better than animal is not necessarily better than vegetable so that's that's just like my way of trying to get a lot of information as you know it's a very bite-sized book (laughs) so (laughs) it's simplified but i think it's better to give consumers that information than to gloss over those topics okay okay um now what is grandmother culture uh, so uh, the grandmother culture, that is um, if you use like a a, a natural cheese making, um, I do talk a little bit about natural cheese making in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I reference Parish Hill Creamery in Vermont, which is one of the only, if not the only, uh, creamery in the U.S. that's using really, really traditional cheese making practices. And that includes mm-hmm. making their own cultures. Uh, so my understanding is that they will, um, at the start of the season, they will find, you know, their best milkers, their favorite cows, and they will allow milk from those cows to naturally ferment and clabber. Mm -hmm. Um, and basically the strongest or best sample from that, um, they'll use that to be the culture that, uh, that feeds every batch made that season basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is how you're you're really capturing terroir. Um, I think Peter Dixon of Parishal uses the phrase autochthonous cultures, those naturally ambient occurring cultures, you know, on the farm, in the field, mm-hmm. in the air, in the cheese room, on the on the hands of the cheesemaker, even. Um, and so that's how they are able to make cheese and and culture their milk without using these, you know, uh, pre-made cultures from giant pharmaceutical companies and. Mm-hmm. Their cheese is amazing. Uh, it sounds like a lot of work to do it that way, but mm-hmm. it also sounds really cool. And I hope it's something that we can see more and more makers trying their hand at. Uh-huh. That that would be good. Now, could you tell us the... Oh, oh, I just want to mention, of course you should eat the rind or at least try it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's another, you know, I feel like most mongers or people who do cheese education get that question a lot. Um, Uh I, I still do. I do virtual tastings now often for these sort of like corporate groups. Um, and these are people who love, you know, fine foods and wines and things like that. Um, and enjoy those things. Maybe they want to learn more, but they just don't have a lot of that knowledge. And they're always curious, like, can I eat this white brie rind? And it's like, 
yeah, that's what it's there for. Um, you know, in addition to protecting the cheese, as we all know, and providing that closed system uh, for the interior of the cheese to ripen, uh, the rind, you know, I always tell people, in addition to adding its own flavor, texture, aroma, et cetera, to the sort of whole picture of that cheese, the cheesemaker worked really hard to cultivate that rind, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a beautiful, rustic, uh, you know, cave-aged wheel or or like a nice uh, little soft white plumy rind. So mm-hmm. um, always try it, but we don't want to force people to eat things they don't want. So right. have a nibble. If you don't like it, you can scoop out the paste. <laughs> uh, or if you do <laughs> like it, you can eat the whole uh, slice. Now, are you a rind eater? I am a rind eater. I feel like for a lot of um, natural rind cheeses, uh, where where it doesn't really bring a lot to the table, when it's just kind of waxy and chewy and not adding a ton of flavor, I'll trim it off just for convenience sake. But mm-hmm. um, when you know you've got like a nice mixed rind that has some really interesting uh, flavors going on, I'm thinking of. The, the first one that came to mind um, is Fat Cat from Bertrand Hill's Farm. Uh, mm-hmm. Sue Miller makes that cheese. She gives it a, a few washes, but it also gets some really nice um, sort of natural, uh, beautiful gray gray molds going on. And that's a cheese um, where you can just eat, you want to eat the whole thing. It's really, really mm-hmm. delicious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Rogue River Blue. So Rogue River Blue. Um this is a really remarkable cheese, uh, had an amazing reputation in the United States even before this, but I believe it was 2019, uh, it took first place at the World Cheese Awards, and it's the first time an American cheese has ever done so. Um, and again, like I said, already really amazing cheese made with this really amazing fall milk in Oregon. Um, and what it what is done with this cheese is uh, it's a blue cheese. It is wrapped in grape leaves uh, that have been soaked in para liqueur. And they just like soak into that cheese and it creates this like really amazing, uh, rich, fruit cakey, super mm. flavorful uh, sort of holiday treat. It's always a big favorite uh, uh-huh. around the holiday time. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, um, okay. So now how did you ever come up with the list of cheeses on page 74? That's your, your list of, uh, American cheeses to taste. You know, that was a challenge with this book because my editors really wanted like some specific cheeses to reference Um, and not everything is available everywhere in the country uh, or in other parts of the world. Um, So I kind of mixed some sort of what I want. I don't know uh, what the best word is like just more readily available artisan cheeses. Like, Uh um, you know, Grayson from Meadow Creek, like you can get that a lot of places. They're a little bit larger, a little bit wider reach, for example. Um, You know, and then I kind of mix in like some of my personal favorites, Uh, Uh you know, especially like there are a lot of great Northeast powerhouse cheeses on this list. But you also have, you know, other other really well-known cheeses like Pleasant Ridge Reserve from Wisconsin. Right. Um, Right. But, you know, or Weaver Creamery, uh, formerly or Weaver Farm, you know, you couldn't really get their farmhouse cave aged anywhere but Vermont um, uh-huh. before they had their ownership switch a couple years ago. And now mm-hmm. it's a lot more available. So I was like, of course I need to shout out their cave age, you know, farmhouse wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have Jasper Hill on there, obviously very um, widely available, um, a lovely bloomy for folks to try from them. But also like Vermont Shepherd, I love their sheep's milk cheeses. You know, we need to be 
eating more sheep's milk cheese and hopefully raising more sheep in this country. And then I shouted out like some of my own favorites uh, from Pennsylvania, Birch Run Blue from Birch Run Hills Farm, Havala mm-hmm. from Cherry Grove Farm in New Jersey. Like those are mm-hmm. folks that I've worked with for years. Um, and then also through my work with Collective Creamery, we used to feature, uh, we, we do a subscription here in Southeast Pennsylvania, a monthly cheese subscription. And we also used to feature guest cheeses. Uh, and we would kind of like meet up with our um some of our favorite cheese folks in the greater Northeast and include their cheeses in our shares. And Finger Lakes Gold was one that I first tasted through that. Um, Dutch Knuckle from Sugar House Creamery is amazing. It now, is I've like never heard pure, of that. Pure brown I've never, butter. I never heard of cheese. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Tiger Lily, I never heard of. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely uh, check out, you know, the, the great thing about, there's, there's not a great thing about the pandemic, but... In the cheese world, if we have to look for some silver linings, one is that a lot of producers who didn't ship or sell outside of their immediate region who are doing really amazing stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe you would have had to go to their farm store Mm -hmm. or to, you know, a local co-op in that area to get their cheese, Uh, or maybe you couldn't even do that. Um, Now they're selling online. So Uh, you can get their product uh. shipped to you and try some of those cheeses. And um, I believe like a lot of these folks who never used to ship before are doing that. So that's how I built that list. I wanted to try and get like some of those like um, really, you know, more easy to reach if you are just going to a cheese shop or maybe looking mm-hmm. at Wegmans or Whole Foods, mm-hmm. a well-stocked cheese counter, and then some like special treats to try if you're in that region mm-hmm. or if that's where you live. Okay. Okay. Now I never saw don't be a sample hog in a book. <laughs> I think it's been said by many a cheesemonger before, but maybe not I out loud. I think so. I think <laughs> so. But uh, it's it was funny to read it. Now, so we're we're going to take a break. Thank you, Alexandra. Uh, we'll be right back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conté is unique. Learn more about Conté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conté-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen USA dot com. Hi, we're back. Hello. 
Now, how did you get into this cheese career? So my first foray into cheese was back in 2008-ish. Um, mm-hmm. I am a, a classically trained tuba player. That's what I got my college degree in. So I was working at a grocery store. Um, I moved to Philadelphia where I live now in 2008. And the job that I got, like, you know, looking for a job, trying to figure out what I was going to do, just needed to pay the bills, was at Trader Joe's, um, the mm-hmm. downtown Philly Trader Joe's that's been there forever. And uh, it was a pretty in cool job. In the cheese department? Well, yeah, they don't really have departments in the same way that a lot of grocery stores do. But mm-hmm. um, I eventually worked my way up to being like a cheese section leader. So I got to order the cheese from the warehouse and merchandise mm-hmm. it and, you know, organize tastings and pull together, um, you know, information about new cheeses. They all, you know, from from since then, they have so many more different varieties and they've, they, I know they've stepped up their game a lot. Um, but that's kind of where I got my first, you know, samples of a lot of different kinds of cheeses because they always really want their staff to be educated about the products. Um, and I've been doing that for a couple years and I was ready to like move on in a, in a direction that, you know, spoke more to me a little bit. Uh, and I got a job helping to manage a CSA at an urban farm where they actually, they hosted the CSA at the urban farm, but they bought produce from all over the region. And Philadelphia is in this very agricultural region between, you know, South Jersey and, you know, Lancaster County, all around it is agriculture. Uh, And we also have a lot of amazing cheesemakers. And the CSA included, you know, produce, but it also included like eggs and cheese. Um, And the people who had run the CSA before me were both vegan. So like the cheeses that they had were not anything super special. Like they were, they were great, but, um, you know, more like your basic, like your flavored cheddars and things like that. Uh, and I did a little more research and I realized I was like, oh, wow, we have like a lot of makers doing some really amazing stuff. And that was the way that I met a lot of the cheesemakers I've worked with since then. Um, mm-hmm. After that job for a couple of years, I moved on to uh, managing an all local cheese counter that only stocked Pennsylvania, New Jersey and Maryland cheeses. And that oh, was really cool. amazing. Um, that must have been great. Yeah, that was super fun. Uh, did that for a few years, started a wholesale cheese program there, you know, selling those local cheeses to chefs and restaurants. Uh, our here in Philly, like our, um, our cheese community is pretty, is, is strong, but it's atomized. Like there's no really, uh, like we have a, a great, um, cheese community with Debruno brothers, but they really specialize more in imported cheeses. As you can imagine, they specialize, mm-hmm. you know, in Italian cheeses, imported cheeses. So, um, they don't do a ton with local. And so we were like, how can we get, you know, how can we get more and more cheesemakers, uh, able to, uh, sell into, into Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And one way we did that is like aggregating their product at our stand, uh, in downtown Philly. And then I would like literally put, when I, when I first started this program, I would put cheese, uh, in the bass, the back of rack of my bike and like bike it over to like this fancy hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I left there, I, uh, started freelancing and I started collective creamery with my two great friends and collaborators, uh, Sue from Birch Run Hills Farm and then Stephanie Angstat from Valley Milk House. And we've been doing it for five years now, which is crazy. Um, just doing these like little monthly uh, cheese bundles for like a happy group of folks in Southeast Pennsylvania and South Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, I'd also started doing some food writing. Um, and I, you know, really leaned into that uh, in addition to my cheese work. And that's kind of what I've been doing since. 
Now, have you written any other books? This is my first book. Um, and you know, at a relatively, I want to say it's like 25,000 words or something like that. It's very petite. Um, in pictures, I like hold it up next to my head because people, people (laughs) see like the, you know, the page on online, like where you can buy the book and it looks like a normal size book, but it's, it literally, literally is pocket sized, um, and very, you know, bite sized chapters that are easy, easy to read, uh, you know, in a short sitting, um, And it was a great like first book project. Like I'd written long form articles and, you know, done nonprofit communication stuff and edited work before, but I had not ever like written a whole book and it was a great learning experience and really fun. Okay. Okay. Now, what are your favorite types of cheese? What do you not like? My favorite types of cheese. Um, I'm kind of basic for a cheese person in many ways. Uh, because I, I do keep some like, um, you know, some staples around like I, you know, we always have Cabot extra sharp cheddar, uh, uh, in my fridge. It's also like my husband's like cheese that he eats every day. Um, but I really love, you know, I love cheeses that I can get here in Pennsylvania. Like I have, mm-hmm. I have my own collective creamery share every month mm-hmm. and it's always so mm-hmm. exciting to enjoy. Um, I love fresh cheeses. I know, again, like they get short shrift because they don't have the most complex flavor, but they do, you know, really showcase the quality of the milk and the season Mm -hmm. that they're made in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can just do so many things with them in the kitchen. Like I do really like to incorporate cheese into my cooking uh, and Mm -hmm. they are great for that. Um, But yeah, I love like Alpine style cheeses. I love super concentrated Gouda styles. I love, you know, a grassy, you know, semi-firm tome. Um... You know, with my my personal cheese vocabulary really having been shaped by, you know, American artisan cheeses, uh, those are kind of my reference points. Mm -hmm. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, I love a wash rind, like melted on toast or something like that. Um, I tried one one cheese that I've been lucky to try. I've been I work for Cheese Grotto. I do a lot of their content for them and also their virtual tastings. And I get, you know, a special box of cheeses when I do my tasting so I can, you know, tell Mm -hmm. everyone what we're trying. And a cheese that I hadn't had before um, this year is the Stag uh, from, I believe, Deer Creek Cheese in Wisconsin. And it's a 17-month age, you know, sharp Wisconsin cheddar. Very mm. tasty, very snackable. And I tried it at the, one of the last tastings I did. Uh, and, you know, we do this whole, like, sensory little ritual with each cheese that we taste. I teach them that. Um, and my first tasting, I was like, this tastes like Lemonhead's candy. It was like sweet and citrusy. It was wild to me. Um, and I had some Meyer lemon marmalade in my fridge that I had just made um, with, you know, a stash of winter Meyer lemons. And I put them together and they just like worked so well. I was was so surprised. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I have my favorites, but I also am always just excited to try something new that's got some really amazing flavor mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Now, how has it been for you during this slower pandemic time? Yeah, you know, um, I have been really, really lucky that a lot of my work did not get interrupted. Um, you know, I had already, I already worked from home <laughs> before mm-hmm. this, so that wasn't mm-hmm. an adjustment for me. But um, I was still, I've still been able to do a lot of my writing work. I've been able to do some really exciting cheese projects. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing, uh, we're keeping it virtual just because what is going to be happening, in, you know, five months in the future, six months in the future is still in question. Right. Um, but I've been working with the Pennsylvania cheese guild. 
um, which is our professional guild of cheesemakers here in the state on a PA cheese month project. We got a grant, um, to do some marketing work and some other, um, some other work in support of the cheesemakers. And we're going to have a, every October is going to be PA cheese month. This year we're going to do virtual tastings and some really fun programming, educational programming around that. Now, um, what are you saying? PhD? Pennsylvania cheese month. Oh, okay. okay. Pennsylvania cheese month. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're, we're focusing on virtual tastings and like, you know, social media, educational content and videos and stuff like that. Uh, uh-huh. this time, but in the future, it'll be like a bunch of in-person cheese events all over the state. Uh, hopefully one day, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been working on a really cool cheese education project with the dairy farmers of Wisconsin, which is super exciting. And I've learned a ton for that. Um, which, you know, the book led to that project. So that's another great thing that I love about the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have been doing virtual tastings. Like I've still been able to, to educate people about cheese and do some writing about cheese as well. So mm-hmm. I have been super lucky. Um, you know, the industry as a whole, I, I feel like has stabilized at least the makers that I know. Right. It was a really crazy year last year and they were all like, you know, cranking it up to 11 to make the same amount of money. Uh, that was a theme that I heard a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're really hoping that things will, things will like pan out this year and go back to something resembling normal. Now, how have you felt the pandemic has affected cheesemakers, big ones versus small ones? Sure. So, I mean, the, the crazy thing about the pandemic is that for the first, I mean, the whole time, everything has been changing really fast. But for those initial months, the first few weeks, first few months, like things were changing very rapidly. Um, I wrote a piece for the counter back last April about what was going on with like small scale artisan cheesemakers or relatively small scale, I should say. Um, And a lot of them, the ones who primarily sold to, to food service or like, you know, big distributors or to restaurants, they would lose 90% of their business overnight. Yeah, like that's what yeah. happened when, when lockdowns happened and they were like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. Um, some of them leaned really hard into virtual tastings. Like I know a maker who says like that they saved my business this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was able to, to really supplement um, their income after those lost restaurant sales with that. Some folks added more farmers markets, others, um, you know, I know one maker Caputo brothers creamery, they did a similar thing where they became a cheese shipping retail company. They were, they were so wholesale focused and now they ship boxes of their frozen mozzarella curd all over the country. And then you get a Mm -hmm. video that teaches you how to stretch it at home. And that's just like Mm -hmm. a genius idea that was really able to support them. Um, you know, other places, uh, definitely had a backup and, you know, we're like, we're, we're not sure. We're not sure if we can keep like start making cheese when we, our caves are full and they're not going to be getting empty. And, you know, we don't know how we're going to sell that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, once things like, like some of these programs started rolling out last summer, I think people were able to stabilize, but you know, cheesemakers needed that help like right away. And they really kind of had to, you know, just like get by for a few months, um, Mm -hmm. until some of that aid started coming in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been terrible for many, many cheesemakers. Yeah. And I mean, just not having sampling, um, you know, at the cheese shop level, I know it's a challenge at the folks for folks selling at farmer's markets or, you know, who used to make a lot of sales or do a lot of marketing at festivals. Like, that is the way that we sell cheese. Like you can, Mm -hmm. you can Mm -hmm. smile and tell people information and have a nice setup and, you know, 
uh, merchandise things beautifully, but like the sale is made when people taste and we didn't have that. And luckily, right, right. Um, you know, the makers I know, a lot of whom do sell at farmer's markets uh, or who have cultivated like a retail customer base, like luckily those folks really came through for them and like continue mm-hmm. to patronize them, especially if they were selling outdoors. Like that's, you know, farmer's markets, CSAs, mm-hmm. all of those things, those mm-hmm. sort of non-grocery store, um, you know, places to buy food really did experience that bump. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that helps sustain them as well. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you educate consumers and what do you tell them? And are they beginners or are they uh, fancy people? <laughs> um, well, I try to educate consumers. Um, I, I'm not sure how good I am at this, but I try to talk to them in a way that makes my truths about cheese self-evident. We'll put it that way. Like, uh-huh. uh, I try and really give them ways to understand cheese that have helped me understand cheese, whether that's, uh-huh. you know, analogies or that, ex- you know, the experiential, um, you know, power of a, of actually tasting and, you know, doing, doing all our little sensory evaluation steps, like looking and, and touching and tasting, uh, and smelling and all of those things. Um, you know, I, I had this funny moment where, again, these are mostly corporate clients. So they're like these people all over the country, um, coming together, you know, to celebrate their team or whatever. And I, I was talking, you know, answering questions. And this woman said like, Oh, you mean I need to like really know about cheese, like the way I would know about wine. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, you should do that with all your food actually. But like Uh for cheese is is a, is a real no brainer. Um, so I really try and give folks some cliff notes on agriculture. Um, that's its own huge topic and, you know, without boring them or like ranting about the dairy crisis or, you know, climate change or anything like that. Um, I try and give folks a context for their buying choices. Like there's a reason to buy local cheese or from grass-based small scale, uh, you know, pasture-based dairies, or even from, you know, um, makers who are raising small ruminants rather than cows. Uh, and they are, there are local economy reasons. There are cultural reasons. There are definitely climate oriented reasons. Um, and, and so it's not just about preference. Like you should, you should buy things that you feel good about and like people, People make very individualized consumer choices all of the time that sometimes uh-huh. take into these things uh, into account and sometimes don't. Right, um, right. But you don't get to be outside of the context in which we live. So right. if you're right. going to buy Cheetos, which I love and eat probably too <laughs> often, like you can do that. Like I know I'm giving a horrible, you know, multinational conglomerate that is using uh, corn, you know, an overabundance of corn and turning it into snacks. Um but I like to eat that sometimes. I also buy, you know, very um, niche, like artisan cheeses from small scale producers. So uh-huh. I try and A, give them that context for their buying choices. Because again, a lot of what I do is to support small scale domestic makers, um, give folks that context or, or, you know, feel empowered to talk to their monger or find that local maker at the farmer's market or go to that farm stand, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing I try and do is really emphasize that you know, flavor, maybe for people who aren't thinking about these things all the time, like a lot of us food people or cheese people are, like flavor and, um, you know, the experience of tasting and and how that can shift, you know, a piece of cheese and a glass of wine can taste different 
you know, after 20 minutes of, of snacking mm -hmm. uh, on mm -hmm. those two things together to really mm -hmm. get them to be present um, in the moment and really think about what they're tasting versus just consuming it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that is a great uh, place to end. Um, I, th I thank you, Alexandra Jones, for joining me on my show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diane. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.